Welcome to the very first episode of Fabric of Folklore. I'm your host, Vanessa Y. Rogers, and I am honored that you are here with us today. We will be attempting in this podcast to under better understand the folktales, legends, and myths, and how they influence culture and how culture influenced those stories. So yes, in this podcast, we will tell stories, but it will go beyond storytelling. We're going to be asking questions that get at the heart of folklore and all of folklore. So yes, the tales, but also the music, the art, and the traditions that weave a culture together. And today in this very first episode, we are starting off with a bang because our very first guest is absolutely stellar. Uh, you're absolutely going to love her. Her name is Lisa Lung, Lung Larson. Is that correct? Lunga Larson. Lunga, sorry, that's right. Um, Lisa Lunga Larson. She's an award-winning author and a professional storyteller specializing in folk folklore of trolls and Norway, where she was born and raised. Today, uh, she lives in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm very honored and happy to be here. Well, um, okay, so let's start a little bit with your uh, childhood in Norway and what that looked like and how it kind of influenced your um, future profession. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I kind of grew up in a very storytelling family. So, uh, and, and stories about trolls and other things that go bump in the night was a big, huge part of my, my childhood. When my brother and I were fairly young, we shared a bedroom. We had bunk beds. And quite frequently after we, you know, the lights were off, my father, who was very tall, six foot three, he would just fill out his frame with, you know, all kinds of cushions and pillows. And then he would come charging into our bedroom. He's like, I smell the smell of human children. Is there any small children I can eat up here? And we would be like, ah! And then we'd have to think of, you know, <laughs> ways to trick him to get him out of there by turning on the, turning a flashlight on him or something that would, you know, cause the troll to explode. And he would stay in character the whole time while y'all were... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he would go, ah! when we turn on the light or the flashlight or, you know, I remember my first encounter with a troll was when I was three years old and I was walking with my mom in the woods. My dad was fishing in this lake and we were walking and it was just, you know, it was one of those dense forests with just the light just filtering through. And suddenly my mother took me by the shoulder and said, Lisa, look, there's a troll. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to die <laughs> until until I saw that it was it was a dead troll. And so, when it, you know, an overturned tree root. So, you know, when trolls die of old age, they they don't turn to stone. They they begin to shrink and they get smaller and smaller, kind of like people do and stiff. Uh -huh. And then the dirt builds up all over him and then trees and shrubs begin to grow and then creepy crawlies. And as they get stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, they stop walking more than once a day and then once a week and then once a month and once a year. And then they just petrify and they look like old overturned tree roots. And that's what my mother was pointing at. So it was a dead tree. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, but what is it that, that makes those petrified? I mean, is it actually a petrified tree root that people are seeing? I think they're actually seeing ancient tree roots, but I wish I could show you my collection of, of the dead trolls in the Minnesota's boundary water. 
uh, because I have some awesome pictures of trolls that died that well, way. Well, you can definitely send those to us and we'll put them up on the website. Yeah, when my husband comes home because he's got them all in a yeah. file. But yeah, definitely lots and lots of uh, of dead trolls that have turned into tree roots. Oh my goodness. It looks like you. So do yeah. you think that that is where people started coming up with the idea of trolls? Well, so trolls are part of Norwegian, you know, mythology. So in Norse mythology, which is, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the religion, you could say, of the Vikings mm -hmm. and other Teutonics of Germans too. And, uh, you know, the very, very first thing when the world came into being, the first thing that rose out of this huge gap called Ginnungagap was a frost giant. And it was this enormous, huge creature. And then um, out of his armpit and from between his toes, came the race of the trolls and the first one was an enormous he grew to this huge size and it had six heads and it had six arms three on each side and it was ferocious and ever since that time you know norway has been peopled by trolls the humans came much later so the first thing you know emir it's a long story about emir who then was later slain by the you know uh, by the gods and then they took emir's body emir is the first troll yeah, he was the frost giant. Okay, the giant. frost giant. Okay. So they created the world from okay. him. So, you know, they used his skull to create the dome of the sky. And they took his blood and turned it into water and lakes and oceans. And his hair became, you know, the trees and the grass. And his bones became rocks and boulders and his teeth. And his, his brains became the clouds. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So, so really, when you're walking around in Norway, you are walking on dead trolls because, you know, when trolls, when, when the sun shines on a troll, so they're of the landscape and then they return to the landscape when they die. And so when the sun shines on a troll, he explodes or he just turns, he, he turns to rock. So if you go to Norway, which I think you should, definitely, you will be going to places that are called things like, um, uh, the troll wagon. I was there this summer. The troll wall, yeah. these mountains, mountain wall is a troll wall, and the troll peaks, and the troll caps, and the troll ladder. There's one famous one called Troll Tunga, the troll tongue, and it's a huge mountain with this troll tongue sticking right out, you know, like a stone, and it looks like a troll's tongue. So, you know, all over Norway, there's all these mountains. Like Jotunheimen is named the the Jotun, it's a mountain range and it's named after a certain kind of troll called the Jotuns that you see in Norse mythology. Uh -huh. And then there's Dovre, Dovre Gubin was you know, the king of the trolls. That's another mountain. So you can be walking on dead trolls. And so tell it's us about the king of the trolls. Well, the king of the trolls, Dovre Gubin, he, we don't have a lot of stories about him. He apparently lived to be really, really ancient. And there's stories about him sitting on a rock wondering how old he is, you know. Because <laughs> he's so old. He's so old. And, you know, they might get very old, but they're not very smart. You know, that's the thing about yes. trolls. Is you can always trick them. You can <laughs> always trick them. Their brains are super slow. They're only about the size of a walnut. Mm -hmm. So even though they're big and scary, you know, if you just don't lose your cool, if you can just use your brain, yeah. you can always control for oh, sure. Oh, that's good. Even a priest. <laughs> even a priest. <laughs> that's really good. So um, 
the, you, you said that the Vikings were the ones who were the ones who came up the, with these creation myths. Well, I, th- these stories are pre-Viking, you know, so they're, these are from, I don't think anybody knows exactly when they came from, but they were written down, you know, they, they invented the runic script. Mm-hmm. And so they were written down and we have this, we have the stories, uh, the Norse mythology stories collected in, um, you know, in various collections. And you see references to them in the saga literature from Iceland. Uh-huh. Um, and then you see a lot of them also in the art when Christianity came to Norway, those stories were forbidden. Oh, interesting. And so the, the Viking, t- the stories, you know, about the gods, about Thor and mm-hmm. Odin and the Jotuns and the trolls and all of this, that was forbidden. Uh, but the artwork that accompanied these stories was not forbidden. So you can find these early churches and they still have, you know, paintings of Odin and Thor and of dragons and and things like that. It's very interesting. And then um, there's a lot of scholars that think um, that even though, you know, even though the stories were not, these myths were not allowed to be told, they just transmuted and changed shape and became the folk tales. Okay. So there's a character in Norwegian folklore called Askeladden, which is the, the ash lad, and that the god Thor became this ash lad. Because, you know, Thor, red hair, big beard, not, not the brainiest, you know, he seems a little bumbling also, <laughs> but he was the protector. He's the one who protected the humans from the trolls. Mm-hmm. That was his, one of his big jobs. And so in the folk tales with the ash lad, the ash lad always ends up outwitting the troll. So, you know, it's just the way that this lives on. Yeah. Uh, you can't keep a good story. No, down, absolutely. You know? And so even after it had been tried to, to be suppressed by the church, it still had a resurgence later on, or did it just continue um, like throughout the ages? And then it, it, do you feel like it's stronger today or what is your feel on that? No, it's not stronger today. What, what happened is of course that, you know, before literacy spread, mm-hmm literature that you had was the oral tradition right people telling stories to each other and that was a very lively tradition you know from uh, you know the so-called dark ages through the you know middle ages and into the renaissance but with with the renaissance and all of these changes that came about um more you know more and more people became literate Mm -hmm. and as people became more and more literate the people that started listening to the stories the old stories folktales were the people who still couldn't read mm-hmm. and you know that was often children and that's one of the reasons why we think of folktales as something that is for children mm-hmm. or for you know uh, but then with the sort of national romantic movement that was born in the 1800s mm-hmm. wept through europe it, then um the whole idea this sort of romantic idea that the folk you know the people who couldn't read and write that they were the preservers of the true culture mm-hmm. became this strong strong sort of motivating force and that's when the brothers grimm in germany went out and collected they didn't write 
the Grimm's fairy right. tales. They collected them oral from you know people who told them and wrote them down. And not very many years later, two collectors in Norway named Asbjörnsen, Peter Christian Asbjörnsen and Jörgen Jorgen Mo, collected started collecting stories in Norway. And um, in fact, they they wrote these down and published. I think it was in 1848, maybe the first volume. It became a huge national hit because at that time, Norway had for 500 years, 400 years, excuse me, Norway had been Danish territory. Okay. Okay. And then in 1814, after a war with Napoleon, um, Denmark and Norway was on the losing side and Sweden was on the winning side. So Norway got traded to Sweden <laughs> as a war settlement. So now we were Swedish, right? But we didn't feel Swedish and we didn't feel Norwe you know, Danish. So the huge question for Norwegians at that time, the Swedes allowed us to set up an independent government, but we had to have a Swedish king and we had a horrible flag that was Swedish with a little bit of Norwegian in the corner. Mm -hmm. They called it herring salad. <laughs> but um, when these when these stories were published, it was just like this visceral thing in the country. It's like, this is who we are. This is who we are that's not Swedish and not Danish. These folktales with a wry sense of humor with these giant trolls that were such a foil for the human, you know, they're all things evil and dark and humans are plucky and, you know, all of this sort of felt to be the essence of the Norwegian different from the other Scandinavian countries. Okay. So they became so they they became so important when they were first published that as Norway moved away from Denmark and uh, and started to develop the you know all books in Norway had to be in Danish because we were Danish. Right. But then when not to be sort of Sweden. Um, the Swedes weren't quite so after us to become, you know, didn't have a Swedish written right. language. So slowly but surely, they began to become more and more and more Norwegian. The three books that were printed first, every time there was an official change in the language, was the Bible, the official book of hymns, and the collection of Norwegian folktales. Wow. So in the, you know, you know, you're familiar with the music by Edward Grigg, in the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh, okay, yeah. Right, yes, yes. The Mountain King is a troll. Wow, right, yes, that's what you were saying. That's, he wrote that for Henrik Ibsen's play, Pergunt. Mm -hmm. And in this, Pergunt's a real rascal. He won't be, you know, he, but he ends up in a, in a Hall of the Mountain King and he almost married the, the troll king's daughter. And this is, this is when he's, being, you know, run around by the trolls. So Ibsen, I think Ibsen said that to, to write is to sit in judgment of yourself. To live is to battle with trolls. Oh, that's a great quote. So that song was written for a play? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, for in Per Gint. Per Gint. And how did it become so widespread like why would an american know that that tune how did it become uh because it's a great yeah it is that <laughs> i mean that the music that he wrote for that play is much more famous now than the play itself is although in norway that play is very famous interesting 
And that, so, and that was also from that period when that Norwegian nationalism was born because we had spent 500 years being either Danish or Swedish. And now we were just finding out who we right. are that's different from, and it's, you know, we're all kind of blonde and blue eyed and outdoorsy. Right. So it's hard to tell us. <laughs> so would you say that trolls are really the, the creature that differentiates you in terms of folk tales? Um, from the Danish and the Swedish, or are there other folk creatures that might also uh, take that on? I, I think that the Norwegian troll is very much sort of like almost like a symbol of Norway, yeah. you know, and in, not in Sweden and not in Denmark. Denmark is very oriented around Hans Christian Andersen stories with the Little Mermaid, right. you know, the snow. Those are called literary folk tales because they sprang from his mind, not from the collective, you know, oral tradition. Oh, okay. I did not realize that. And I thought he was also a folklorist. No, he was not. He was he was inspired by the stories that he mm -hmm. heard, but they're really if you read them, there's a really different tone. It's very, very different. You can tell they have an author okay. that they're not just written down. Right. Yeah. So, um, and Sweden has a rich, you know, history of, of stories, but um, they are not as well known. Again, it's like people are maybe familiar with the Tomten, you know, the Astrid Lindgren story uh, about that, which is about the little gnome. And, I don't know the story. But this, mm, you, your little child in a few years will really like it. <laughs> well, why don't you give us a little uh, a little taste of it? Can you give us a a shortened version? Well, I can't tell that one because I actually don't remember that oh, okay. one. But I'll, I'll tell you. But I was going to say what's funny about the Swedish folklorists. They, um, the Norwegian folklorists, as well as the Brothers Grimm, they kept this really earthy kind of oral quality that's very immediate. You get very drawn into the yeah. story. But the scholars that collected the Swedish stories, they just really insisted on this very pedantic, moralizing tone. Uh -huh. so they, they wrote them down, but they really made them inaccessible. So they never took off in Sweden. In the same oh, way. Interesting. And Norway, Norwegian folktales don't really have the moral attached to each of them? No, not much. I mean, it's implied, but not, you know, it's an implied moral, but it's not one of those that's hit you over the head. So, like, give us um, an example of one that has an implied moral. Well, I think um, almost all of the stories do in that the, um, let's say we get go back to the troll stories, right? Or any one of the stories, it's always about a, a say an adolescent hero mm -hmm. that encounters a difficulty. Let's say it's the boy who had an eating competition with a troll. In this story, it's the youngest of three brothers, right? And the father's busted his back and they have to go up and they got to start chopping down the wood and help out the family because right. they're running out of money. And they're, they're like, no, 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 dad, you do it, you do it. So, He's they're like, we don't want to go. There are trolls in the woods. And he's like, I build trolls all the time when I was your age. You can do it. So finally, you know, the first one comes out and, you know, gets his axe. He goes off into the woods and he starts to chop down. And no sooner has he struck the first blow than out of the woods comes this troll. I'm going to kill you and eat you up. He gets so scared. He runs home and cries to his mom and dad. And his dad's like, oh. 
you are such a chicken, you know. Anyone could have tricked that troll. When I was your age, I did it all the time. So he's very ashamed. And then the second brother has to go on. And he has the same fate, runs right back down. So the third one, the Ash lad, um, it's his turn. And they tease him. They're like, oh, you, the only thing you're good for is sitting around poking in the ashes. You think you're going to be able to deal with a troll? Anyway, he doesn't pay attention. He just asks his mom for some food. So she gives him this big, juicy cheese curd, which he put in his backpack, puts on his back, gets his axe, off he goes to the forest, puts his sack down, and gets his axe ready, and it starts to chop. Whap! He has no sooner struck that first bolt. And again, out of the woods comes that great big, huge troll, screaming and roaring, if you're cutting down my trees, I'm going to kill you and eat you up. But this boy's not so slow. He goes over to his backpack. He gets out this cheese skirt and he holds it up, squeezing it, saying, if you don't watch it, I'm going to squeeze you the way I'm squeezing the water out of this white rock I have here. Oh, says the troll. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were so strong. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, listen, if, if you will not squeeze me like that, I'll help you chop down the trees. So, okay, he says, so that's what they do. You know, they chop down the trees. And then the kind of end of the day, and there's no food at home. And the troll looks at this juicy boy and he says, oh, how about it? How about you come to my house and we'll have a bite to eat together? So he said, sure. So they go there. And the troll says, well, I'm going to make up a fire. You go out to the well and get the bucket and fill it with water and we'll make porridge. Okay. So he goes outside, but, you know, it's not a normal bucket. It's this huge cast iron thing. He can't even lift it. And here the troll thinking he's so right. strong. He's like, okay. He says to the troll, okay, um, you know what? I'm going to bring the whole well inside. This thimble, it's so tiny, this little bucket you have. Let's let's get the whole well. No, says the troll, you can't do that. You know, just you go inside and make the fire. I'll go and get the, the water. <laughs> so they do that. Down, and then he makes the porridge. And before he sits down to eat, the, the boy looks at the troll and he says, how about it? What if you and I have an eating competition? <laughs> says the troll. So he agrees because he's like oh, 10 times bigger. But before the ashlet sits down, he takes his backpack and he ties it around his stomach. And then he sits down to eat. And then after a while, instead of putting the food in his mouth, he puts it in his <laughs> backpack. The backpack, he got his knife out and he slices hole in the sack and the food runs out and he can keep fooling it. But the troll, he can't figure out what's going on at all because he's not very smart. And finally, he's really full and he says, I don't get it. How can you eat so much? You're so little. He says, well, it's very easy. I just, you know, got my knife out and I put a hole in my stomach and this way I could eat as much as I want. Oh, that's a really good idea. Oh, didn't that hurt? No, not to speak of, not for a big guy like you. So the troll gets his knife out and he puts it to his stomach and he rips over it. And of course, he couldn't survive that. He falls over onto the ground, dead as a doornail. And the ash lad is safe and he runs inside. He gets all the gold and silver he can carry that, you know, that the troll has been hoarding and brings it home to his mom and dad. And with that, they live in the greatest of happiness and wealth to the end of their days. <laughs> so there doesn't appear to be a moral on there. But, you know, it's clearly if you start to think about it, it's like, don't give up, you know. Don't listen to people who put you down. Yeah. Use, don't be frightened. Use your smarts um, you, and, and you'll do okay. I mean, the stories are always like yeah. that. It's always over 
over and over again, you learn just all these implied lessons about many, this one doesn't have, you know, but in many stories, it's like, there might be the boy who goes out to do the thing, but it's very often a princess who uses her brain and helps him solve the Oh, problems. that's interesting. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't feel like we have that in our culture very much at all. Did you get this No. One? What is that one called? That's the troll with no heart in his body and other tales oh, of trolls. I think that Norway. one might be the one on hold at the library. Oh, yeah. That's got some great, uh, great uh, troll stories. It's got that story in there. That was a little long. Sorry. No, I mean I loved it. I was, <laughs> I was definitely enthralled. So you know, it's got all these implied things about, um, you know, be persistent. Mm -hmm. You know, don't give up. Work with your friends. Be kind. You know, be. It's just it has a lot of implied um, values yeah. that are not. As you, you know, it, it doesn't hammer you over the head. What it is, it's just always a great story to listen exactly. to. Exactly. And, you know, it, it, it reminded me of the Billy Goat Gruff story a little bit. Yeah. I mean, a, kind of a, a longer yeah. version of that one, but three brothers in that one as well. And they're they're all tricking tricking a troll at the same time. That's right. That's right. That's like one of my favorite stories of all time. Oh, is it? And that's. I, yeah. I did not realize it was um, from Norway. I, I didn't, because oh. <laughs> I, I grew up with that yeah. one and my kids and I okay. um, will play. We have a little bridge that is um, near one of our walks and I'll go under the bridge and play the troll and the kids will walk over the bridge and pretend to be the goats and they, they just love that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's exactly how I grew up. You were asking me and I was going to say, Whenever you went hiking, which is like what you had to do on Sunday, uh -huh. if there was a bridge and there were some, it wouldn't even be your family. It could be some total strangers who see that a family with kids are coming and they would hide underneath the bridge. And when you came, it was like, who's stepping over my uh -huh. bridge? And you'll go, oh, it's only me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's bridge. wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so let's see. Let me take a, a, a sip of water real quick. I'll do, two, I'll do the same. Um, okay, so when I was looking at your website, I saw that you had a lot of different um, quotes that were uh, listed on there. And one of them was, I, you had several from G.K. Chesterton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll just read it real quick. Um, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Um, yeah, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you love this quote or why you've listed it? Oh, yeah. You know, dragons, trolls, things, you know, that's what I think. One reason I think children really love the stories is because they, they don't try to tell you that there will be no difficulty. Mm -hmm. Every story is about difficulty and it's about meeting something that's really big and scary. Right. And for children, the things that seem maybe like nothing to you are like dragons or trolls to them. It's things like, I remember my youngest son, when he was at the end of first grade, he was the only one who hadn't lost a tooth mm -hmm. yet. And it was like the end of the world. Am I never, am I going to be the only one that will never lose mm -hmm. a tooth, you know? Will I be able to handle a sleepover at mm -hmm. my friend's house? Mm -hmm. 
because that's scary, <laughs> right. you know. Will I? So all of these things are are really scary to children. And uh, when you read them folk tales, what the tales tell them is that yeah, you will encounter dragons. There, you know. I had a couple of dragon teachers. Let me tell you, <laughs> growing up, <laughs> that were terrifying, right. and. Um, and the, the stories tell them that you can, and they also give you almost like a blueprint for how to overcome that kind of challenge, right. that kind of difficulty. And that's what, you know, that quote is about. It could be about dragons. It could be about trolls, but it's about or dragon teachers, big <laughs> dragon <what>? teachers. <laughs> yeah. Is it, should I, I'm getting the light in here. Are you getting, seeing me okay? Should I'm I, seeing you okay. Um, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I'm just seeing. The, oh, there yeah, we go. <laughs> the sunlight's coming right in. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, so can you, you had several quotes from this gentleman, G.K. Chesterton. Was he a folklorist or um, someone who wrote folk stories? I can't even remember anymore. I hate to admit to tell you. I would have to Google him and look him up. He was famous. He was famous. The, my favorite quotes are the one from Einstein. Okay. Do you said, have one? If you, he said, well, you know, because Einstein, yeah, what he said was, if you want smart children, read them fairy tales. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want even smarter children, read them even more fairy tales. Right. And it's because, you know, the, the fairy tales describe the world using the imagination. I mean, there are many, many ways to describe the world, right? You could describe it, you know, historically with events that have happened throughout history, or you could describe it mathematically right. or through science. Um, and using folk tales, that's another way of describing the world, but you're using the imagination. And it describes a world that mirrors the world, the way children experience it. Because small children, you know, rocks can talk, right. you know, they, they, things are alive. Mm -hmm. So it mirrors their world and it functions in a way that makes sense to them. It's also a world where, you know, things, it has a set formula, right? Once upon a time, a long, long time ago. And then it has this rising action, mm -hmm. right? A problem. And then there's going, they know when they're listening to that story that there's going to be a solution right. to the problem and things are going to end okay. Mm -hmm. As they grow up and they are living in a world where they're beginning to realize that things don't always work out okay, they, 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 can, they can relax for a spell, right. you know, in, in that listening to that story, knowing that things are going to be okay. And at the same time, as you know, you're listening to that story, it opens up that world of imagination, especially if you tell a story rather than watch it, because you know, it just, it uses kind of smoke and mirrors. It doesn't tell you what the princess looks like. It just says she's beautiful. Right. When the prince might be handsome, but you know, I tell stories to kids from every kind of culture and they're all imagining the prince or the princess or the hero or heroine as themselves. Nobody gives any color or race, you know, or size or shape. Yeah. If you say they have beautiful clothes, they are all imagining it when they're, you know, so when you're describing things, they, they fill it in mm -hmm. with themselves. their imagination. Whereas when you watch a movie, you know, it's all been done for them. Everything has been, 
you know, so as great as, you know, these movies are, mm -hmm. you know, you can never see Elsa in any other way than you have seen her in right. Frozen. Right. right. But if you heard a story, every child would have had a different version of Elsa inside mm -hmm. their head. In one that was more like themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and that's one of the reasons why they're so satisfying. Exactly. Yeah. That, that they can, they can put themselves into those stories. And also a lot of people are like, Oh, that's such a scary story. How can you tell it? It's, of course I do. Well, I do it differently for different ages, right. but, but they also, when you, if you aren't too graphic, they will just let their own minds will stop right. where it needs to stop. Mm -hmm. And it happen when you see it in video. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You yeah. Someone also decided for them how far it should go. And, and it's often too much for small children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, those are those are some of the many many reasons why, you know, and the kids kids are so. I, I'll give you a really great example, and it's about the Billy Goats okay. of how how they live in this story. It was one school, and I was there. It was a whole auditorium. It was kindergarten, first and second graders. It was probably about hundred and fifty kids, and I started out with the three Billy Goats Gruff. And you know, I'm very sort of like you're. You know, when I'm on an auditorium, it's like. When the troll comes, it's like, who's stepping over my bread? <laughs> I'm on my way to the monster. <laughs> I'm going to come and gobble you up now. Oh, please, please don't leave me up. Why don't you wait a little while until my, my brother comes? He's really a lot bigger and fatter than I am. All right, then, roared the troll. So off runs little boat. Well, I was telling this story. When I got to the second Billy Goat coming across and the troll roaring, this little kindergartner leapt up from the floor, ran across the gym, jumped up onto the auditorium, grabbed my leg and shouted, I got him! I got him! I've got him! <laughs> That's amazing! How brave of that little kid! <laughs> can, you, can you believe it? I mean, we had to get the principal to peel him off my leg because he was going to protect that Billy Goat. Oh, you know, he was going to defend them. That's him. so sweet. He accessed this amazing amount of courage inside of himself. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's just, you can't, you just can't beat that. It was another time I was telling stories and these were fifth graders. Uh -huh. And they were kind of a rough bunch. And the teacher just said, you know, these kids are kind of, this is a tough crowd. This is the last session of the day. If they're bad, just leave. So, you know, I pulled up the best of the troll stories and I did, you know, and they were just like riveted. It was just like you threw a spell on them. They didn't move. And after I had finished and I'd done this one story called The Troll with No Heart in His Body, that's like really a great uh -huh. story and appropriate for fifth and sixth graders who think they're too old right. for stories. Um, at the end, there was just dead silence. And then this one little boy stood up. And he was so concerned. He said, so do you think that in the future, like when we might have better weapons and stuff, that we will do a better better job getting rid of trolls? And I said, I don't think so, because trolls are evil. And evil is a really old thing in the mm -hmm. world. And you can't use modern weapons to get rid of something that ancient. And we had the best discussion these fifth graders they were so insightful talking about what did you really need to combat evil and you know we concluded that you had to be the opposite of a troll you had you can't you can't be like a yeah. troll and fight a troll 
have to be its opposite. And that those kids figured that out. You have to draw on the best of what you are. Wow. You know, you have kind and persistent and, you know, just, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing, you know, going around telling stories because people, people think kids, you know, they, they are, they just really get it. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some other great questions that you've gotten from kids? Oh, (laughs) you know, you've read the story about the river Mm -hmm. sprite because of, I remember, so the river sprite for an audience is a little being that lives in the rivers and often behind waterfalls and is very, very good at playing the violin. That's one of my kids' favorites, by the way. That's one of their favorite stories. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, you know, you don't usually see these creatures. Mm -hmm. They they are hidden creatures. But um, if you... um, it's said that all the best violinists in the world have learned their art, you know, from the river mm-hmm. sprite. And that if you could find a river where a river sprite lived, you would know by hearing, you know, the music. If you come on a Thursday and you bring him a leg of mutton, mm-hmm. what's mutton? It's a leg of lamb. Okay. Um, then, uh, you know, it, it must be a lot of meat on it because otherwise he will just teach you to pluck but if it's a good size, he'll he'll teach you to play his instrument. Mm-hmm. And one little girl, she goes, and she raised her hand and he said, she said, I, I know, I know where there's a river like that. And he said, but does he want the meat cooked or raw? <laughs> so she wanted to learn how to play the fiddle. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, it's just like are there descendants of trolls alive today? I mean, they were very astute. That was a long time ago, but I remember one kid saying, so is Saddam Hussein a troll? Interesting. And we decided he was Mm -hmm. a troll. He was definitely a troll because that's kind of what Ibsen was hinting at when he he says to live is to battle with trolls, Uh that, that when you let the dark side, when you let the evil, when you start turning towards doing things that are wrong, you're becoming a troll. Interesting. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. When I, when I was a bad kid, my mother called me in Terolunga, a troll kid. <laughs> How, <laughs> you know. So one of the stories in Hidden Folk um, was about Selkies. And um, I had heard about Selkies uh, through that movie, Song of the Sea, I believe is the movie. Um, yeah. But I, I had thought that original it originated from Scotland. But I, I know that there are a lot yeah. of those, like, you know, stories that kind of are in different regions as well. Um, do you know if it originated in Norway or where it? No, I, I do. I do think those are. So, you know, the, the whole Atlantic seaboard kind of shares a shared culture right. and uses different names. So, you know, we all have mermen and mermaids. And there are a lot of, but the the Selkie stories are more traditionally told, like in Scotland and Ireland, the Shetland Islands Mm -hmm. and, you know, Faroe Islands, which used to belong to Norway. Okay. Yeah. And and all of these stories, you know, they are, they're about that liminal space, that in-between, you know, they they come out in the in-between times, at dusk and at dawn, you know, when you're in-between, when you're not you know, one thing and not another, like maybe you're pregnant, you're not a mother, but you're not not right. a mother either. Or you're engaged to be married, you're not married, but you're not unmarried right. either. Exactly. 
team. Yeah, and so that's that's their time. Well, can you tell our listeners out. who aren't familiar with the the stories of Selkies a little bit about them? Well, um, the story in the book is very long, so I'll I'll just. But the Selkies are the Selkies are come. They look like seals, mm-hmm. but they actually can take their seal skin off, and when they do, you know, they look exactly like humans, mm-hmm. except ever just incredibly beautiful. And, you know, this particular story you're referring to, and almost all of the stories are like mm-hmm. that. It's about a man who sees a selkie woman and just falls madly mm-hmm. in love. And decides he just has to marry her. So he hides her skin. And basically and keeps her captive. Love- <laughs> basically keeps her captive on earth. Yeah. Keeps her captive on earth. So it's, it's, you know, and they have children. And even though, you know, she loves her children, she's a very, very good mother. She always longs for the mm-hmm. sea. And then one day when he goes off, one of her children finds the key to the box where he has hidden her seal skin. Uh-huh. And so she's able to get her seal skin back. And so she sits down, you know, with her children and tell them that she has to return to her first family. Mm-hmm. They can always come down to the rocks along the seashore and whenever they need any help, just call for her and she'll come mm-hmm. back. And so she puts her seal skin on and she dives back into the sea. Uh, but it's lovely because every Midsummer Night's Eve, you know, she comes back and visits them. And whenever they need anything, uh, she will come back and they get to know their seal brothers and sisters. And there's oh, there is that sense in these stories, you know, that we oh, are... We are we we are not we are more than we think we are. So what I was going to say was that you know that they they kind of all of those kinds of stories. It's about how they're sort of like our hidden selves, like they're part of they're a part right. of us. You know. Yeah. So so like did you did you read that little story about the origin of the hidden people in the introduction to that? Book? Yeah, the part where you were talking about how they were um, almost like rumors that. Um, your aunts and uncles, your aunts and mothers would would tell, and they weren't written down, but they were whispers, uh, actual true. They were told as if they were actually true. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah and I was thinking about the story, the, the story about Adam and Eve, and how uh, it's a story about the origin of the hidden folk. Okay, which said that when when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden mm-hmm. of Eden, they. They, they they had a rough time setting up shop and they, they had a lot of kids. Oh, yes. and Eve was just not a very good housekeeper. Right, yes. I I really relate to that story. <laughs> I do too. I do too. So Matt doesn't know it. So what happens is one day God comes wandering into the garden and he says, Well, Eve, let me let me see your children. And Eve is so embarrassed because, you know, she hasn't cleaned them up and they most of them look like just a bunch of ragamuffins. Right. So she hides the messy children and she takes the two that she's managed to dress and clean and she brings them out and says, here, God, these are my children. But of course, God knows and sees everything and says, oh, Eve, what have you done? From now on, you know, those children that you have shown me shall remain seen in this world and the ones that you have hidden shall remain hidden. And so it has been to this very day. Uh, we are the descendants of those two clean and yes. clean children. And the, all the hidden folk are descendants of the messy children. So they really are our, our siblings. They are our hidden right. selves, which I think is a very, you know, 
I just it's one of those medieval legends that I think hints at a deeper a deeper yeah source. absolutely yeah. yeah I can see that um okay so let's go back a little bit to how you got into this line of work and how it you felt like it um you know it it, it called to you well so I was in Norway and I got something called the Crown Prince Herald Scholarship to go to mm -hmm. college in the United States. And that was great, but it was only for a year and I'd fallen in love and I wanted to stay more than a year. So my parents were like, you stay, you pay because it's free in Norway. <laughs> and so I got a job at the library at the college where I was in the children's mm -hmm. library. And it was a great job because students only came in twice a week and I needed to read as many children's books as I could to familiarize myself with the collection so I could help the students. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's, I mean, I'd never read any Dr. Seuss or any, you know, of the American children's books. I was in heaven. It was great. And, but they didn't have many of the Norwegian mm -hmm. stories. And then, you know, after about, a while, I it kind of occurred to me that these kids were getting college credit for reading all these books. And I was like, I'm going to do this. So I decided to take that class called um, Children's Literature. Uh -huh. And when we got to the part, there's always a part that's called folklore and storytelling. Uh -huh. The professor who knew me a little by then said, Lisa, I bet you know a story. Could you tell us a story? And I was like, sure can. And I got up and I told him the three Billy Goats gruff. Uh -huh was a big success and so she told about me to her friend the professor at the main university of minnesota mm -hmm. and then i started telling stories in her classroom so these two professors kind of took care of me a bit they, they really sort of look out for me and there was going to be a big dinner and a famous swedish author was coming to be a keynote speak and people from all over the Twin Cities, like 300 people, librarians, teachers, people interested in children's literature were coming. And I was invited to be the guest of these two professors so that I could, you know, hear uh -huh. this. So we had this dinner and that was very nice. And then somebody came and whispered to one of them and the two professors started talking together. And um, suddenly um, the, one of them said, Lisa, have a glass of sherry. So they poured me a glass of sherry and I was, you know, okay. I didn't really drink sherry, but I had some sherry. Have another glass of and sherry. sherry's strong, so right? It's, it's, it's a lot stronger than wine is. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was a new script. So I was like super, I was, I'm pretty lively to begin with. And then after that second glass, maybe the third, I don't know. They said, you know, Maria Gripe is stuck in a snowstorm in Chicago and she can't come. But we have all these people here and they're expecting some entertainment. Why don't you tell them stories? And I said, sure. That's amazing. And that's how my storytelling career was born. I had all these people who all had libraries, you know, with story hours or teachers. And I was a student, so I couldn't receive money. I just worked for dinner. <laughs> that's uh, amazing. So did you, did you see a big difference in the folklore of... Um, were you going to school in Minnesota where you are now? Okay. Yeah, that's where I got, that's how I ended up here. I had a scholarship to go to college. No, um, so did you see a lot of difference in the folklore here in America uh, as opposed to Norway? Well, yeah, because what I was introduced to as American folklore when I came was, you know, the tall tales. 
you know, with Paul, oh, with Paul yeah, Bunyan, yeah. all of those. And only later did I sort of learn, well, I learned a lot more about, you know, <clears throat> African-American folklore, which is quite amazing, mm-hmm. you know, with all the, the rare rabbit and the tar baby stories and all of these. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but yeah, and at, at that time in the, there began to be quite a, a lot of um, folktales published with people like Tommy DePola doing a lot of Italian mm-hmm. folktales. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, clearly nobody had done trolls yeah. properly. I mean, there was you, but I, it's like they just didn't understand yeah. trolls. <laughs> <laughs> but I did storytelling for almost 20 years before I began to write the stories down. Interesting. And how did you go about doing that research? Um, you know, my father was an antiquarian, an old and rare book dealer. I grew up in a house that was a bookstore where every book was at least a hundred years oh old my or older. <laughs> and so um, I have collected and I found in you know, at home, many beautiful old, really, really old collections of folktales. And I also had, you know, I had my, uh, I actually got a collection of the Norwegian folktales in English. No, they were, were they English? Well, I got them as a wedding gift from some neighbors who said, so you won't ever forget your Norwegian folktales. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) And and so I, um, I, I did a lot of reading you know, I knew tons of stories from having heard them mm-hmm. growing up, but then I started reading a lot of those really old collections with more sort of more of the hidden folk stories, which are not so much in the actual Norwegian collections of folk tales. They don't have so many, you know, uh, of the n- hidden folk, the Nisse, the the fairies and elves and gnomes and dwarves. They are in other kinds of collections that didn't really become as popular. For reasons I'm not sure of, they weren't. They were more. They, you know, that they were more anecdotal mm-hmm. in nature, and so they were often. The, I guess one of the differences is that the the folk tales that sort of begin once upon a time, a long, long time ago, they have a certain literary quality to it, and they were always told as entertainment, mm-hmm. and not not as a literal truth, but as a metaphorical truth. And these stories about the fairies, elves, gnomes, dwarves, selkies, they were always kind of told more like, as an aside, this really happened. This is mm-hmm. true. This is, this is not a make-believe. This, is, this really happened. And so it's a very different quality and to them. Do, are they still told today to, to kids in that, in that fashion? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, my, like, I remember one time, well, my grandmother was supposed to have met, you know, one of the, the, uh, the, the, um, the water horse, Nukken, he's called in the okay. region. And it was a big cautionary story. And then once the creature that's not in this book is called Huldra. And she's this unearthly, beautiful woman that lives in the mountains and she's just bewitching. And the only way that you can tell that she's not a normal human is that uh, she has a cow's tail, but she hides that underneath her skirts. So it was very dangerous for a man, you know, to walk, you know, over the mountains. The only the only power that you would have if you had had to have a steel knife and you have to throw it over her um, if you saw that she had a cow's tail. Otherwise, you know, you'd go home with her. But it said, you know, that they did occasionally marry human men. And if 
that she agreed to marry in a church, her cow's tail would fall off and she would lose some of her unearthly beauty, but she is said to be, you know, they were very good mothers and very, very good storytellers. And my kids were little, I used to say, and when I married your dad, I buried my cow's tail on my right <laughs> now. <laughs> Did you ever go and show them where it was buried? <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny <laughs> oh my goodness well you know yeah it's a very different kind of a type of yeah. A story yeah you know when I was growing up I um I believed that there was a leprechaun in um the attic in our in our house and all of the neighborhood kids believed that as well and I don't know where that even came from but I mean you know kids latch onto those things and they it's, you know, it really sparks the imagination. It, it really does. I was just telling that story about that little rascally Nissan to my grandson's class on mm -hmm. Thursday. And, you know, they were all like, I got one of those, you know, I have, I have one that lives in my Why attic. Why you tell the, the audience? It's pronounced Nisse in Norwegian. And in Swedish, they call the exact same creature Tomte. Okay. T-O-M-T-E. And sometimes in Danish, they're actually called trolls. And that's why you often have that confusion when people think trolls are small. Okay. Because Nisse is only, is right. little, is only about the size of a one or two-year-old. So just a small child, even though he lives to be hundreds and hundreds of years old. And in the old days, of course, he lived, every farmer, the farmers who had a, a Nissa living were very lucky because they took care of all the animals. They loved to brush the horses and the sheep and the goat and the cows and feed them and everything. And so the, the, the farmers called them the good folk, mm -hmm. you know, the good but now there's not so many farms, so it's, their habitat has diminished. So there's not so many, but some of them have moved into houses in their attics, especially if you have a furry pet. Oh, so, uh -huh. you know, you can tell if you, because nisses are not extinct the way trolls are extinct. You can find evidence of trolls and you can find evidence, living evidence of the nissa. So they love to dance and they are nocturnal. So if you hear a lot of creaking mm -hmm. from, you know, I definitely have some. The, <laughs> yeah, then it's the nissa up and about at night and he might be practicing his dance move because he's a really good dancer. Or if you have a pet that's really happy and has a very shiny coat, it might be that you have a Nissa who helps take care of him. But for those of us in the North there, one of the best ways to know if you have a Nissa is if you lose a lot of socks or mittens. <laughs> and that's because the Nissa kind of steals them in order to use it as a mm -hmm. sleeping bag for his mm -hmm. children. Because it's just the perfect mm -hmm. size. So, so the story is about a Nissa that lived on a farm and he was practicing dancing one day and he was going at it so hard that when he did a big, huge somersault, when he landed, crack, he landed with such force that his little leg cut through the floorboard and dangled down into the room below. Well, right then, there was a farmhand named Jack who was busy pitching hay for it. When he saw that, 
you know, little leg. He thought, oh, so Anissa is up there, that rascal. I'm going to give him a surprise. And so he grabbed his pitchfork and he ran up and he poked Anissa in the leg with a pitchfork. And Anissa went, ow, ow, ow. And he yanked his leg up and he hopped around. And the Jack, the farmhand, he just thought this was the funniest thing he'd ever seen, the way that little leg disappeared. He was laughing and laughing. He was still laughing when it was supper time. So the farmer said, well, Jack, share the joke. Oh, he said, Arnissa was dancing so hard today that his leg cut through the floorboard and dangled in to the, into the barn below. And boy, did I give him a surprise. I gave him one big jab with a pitchfork. You didn't just give me one jab. You gave me three jabs because there were three prongs on that pitchfork and I'm going to get you for it. Came an angry little voice from outside. But Jack just laughed. I mean, he was a strapping big 16-year-old. He wasn't going to be afraid of a tiny little mm -hmm. creature like that. He went to bed without a care in the world. But in the middle of the night, that Nissa snuck into the house, down the hall, into Jack's bedroom. And there he grabbed him, lifted him up, and carried him outside. And out there, he grabbed Jack by the legs, and he started to swim him around and around and around. And then he flung him up over the barn. And then he ran so fast to the other side that he caught him before he hit the ground. Then he flung him around and around and over a second time. And Jack, normally a very sound sleeper, boy, did he wake up. Help, stop. I'm so sorry for what I did. Please put me down. I'll be really good. I'll never do it again. Just please put me down. But you know, the Nissa was really mad. He just grabbed Jack's leg and he flung him over a third time. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Finally, on the ninth time he had the Jack have his way, he flung him up. And over the barn so hard that he landed in the middle of a field in a great big brown, smelly mud puddle. Then he saw, when he saw Jack sitting there, he laughed so hard that he woke up the whole household. Down came the farmer and his wife and the kids and the dairymaids and all the other people who worked on the farm. And when they saw Jack sitting out there covered in brown muck, they started laughing too. So poor Jack, he learned his lesson the hard way, but learning he did. From that day on, he was really good to the Nissa. And if you have a Nissa at your house, I suggest you be good to the <laughs> That is such a great story. <laughs> you have to end Norwegian stories with snip, snap, snutta, har er eventyret ute. It means snip, snap, snout, this tale is told out. Oh, that's so cute. I love that ending. <laughs> so do, do you think that people would try and go and steal other farmers' nieces if they, nieces, um, if they uh, didn't have one? Um, you can't do that. Oh. It, they can't. They, the thing I didn't mention about the Nissa that you maybe could deduce is that even though he's very tiny, he's insanely strong. He is so strong he can lift up an entire horse. So you cannot forcibly move mm. a Nissa. But you, if you don't take your Nissa seriously, you know you he can he can leave you and your farm will suffer as a consequence. There's loads of stories about that. And there's loads of other stories where there was like at Christmas, you're supposed to put out porridge for them. Well, every Thursday you should put out porridge, but on Christmas, he expects to have a big lump of butter and some, some sugar on top. And so this one dairy maid, you know, she put the lump of butter and the sugar in the bottom. So when the Nissa saw his porridge, 
didn't have it. He was really mad. So when she came in, you know, he grabbed her and he danced and danced and danced, you know, until she wore her shoes out and she almost fell down dead. And then he sat down and he thought, well, he'd eat his, you know, eat it after all. And then when he came to the, the bottom and found the butter, he felt really bad because he had worn her <laughs> out. So, you know, he restored her to all her, you know, good senses again and, you know, did extra work. But it's kind of like, just don't, don't mess with him. So there's, there, there's this sort of, you know, live, live in um, harmony with the things mm -hmm. around you. Yeah. Do people still put out porridge? No, maybe Icelanders, but not Norwegians. Nis and the Nissa firmly uh, belongs with Christmas in Norway. We don't have Santa's elves. We have Nissa. And the Christmas, Santa Claus is called Jule Nissa. So he's the Christmas Nissa. Oh, how interesting. And his helpers are Nissa, not elves. Oh, yeah. wow. So that's, yeah. that's very interesting. Well, okay. I think, um, <laughs> I think we've covered quite a bit, haven't we? Yeah. You didn't get a quiet No, person. no, but I'm very grateful for you. <laughs> well, do you think there, is there anything else you want to add? Um, there's so much you can say, you know, about the stories, about why, you know, I, I, I think it's, I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because I think the children just don't get these stories mm -hmm. anymore. They're just, there are, you know, they get them maybe as a movie, mm -hmm. but they don't, they don't get the breadth and the depth of the folk mm -hmm. tales. And I think it's a real shame because I think it sparks that creativity. It opens up the world. It gives them a respite. It's just, it does so many things for children. Even something simple. I have teachers tell me, you know, that kids don't understand the references. Like, well, if the shoe fits, mm -hmm. you know, like with Cinderella, you know, or all, all of those kinds of references that you often um, do. And they, they don't, it's like they don't. They don't tell these stories. So I, I hope that we've had a chance to touch on, you know, why these stories are so important and why parents need to keep sharing these stories. And I think it's, you know, do it with books yeah. or just tell mm -hmm. it. Because also, if you get just the really old books, they're quite gruesome. You read The yes. Brothers Grimm and you go, eh. yes. <laughs> you know, you need to... You need, you need to adapt. And, and I, I was going to say that I do think it's a good thing, you know, you don't what happened when these stories were written down, you know, in the 1800s, they became frozen in print the way people thought and spoke mm -hmm. and did things in those days. Until then, it had been a living oral tradition that changed and adapted mm -hmm. with the times, with different people, with different cultures. So, you know, one of the things that's really fun to do is to take the universal elements, but then imagine, you know, adapt the stories so that they're appropriate for children right. today. And, you know, we we are different than, you know, we think differently than people did 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's it's appropriate to be inspired by the really old versions, but bring them up into the modern age. Yeah. Know? And I, if, if you want, there's so much value to the folk, the folk tales, which is why I wanted to start this, this podcast for me. Um, I, I remember folk tales more than any other stories that were told to me. And so they just stick in my mind. And I just kind of wanted to explore 
why that was, why uh, they're so memorable and why they spark so much imagination. Yeah. I have a the psychology psychologist friend who says he thinks that when they hear the stories, they just bypass the entire more frontal cortex, the modern brain, and it goes right back down to the ancient part of the brain where they reside right next to fire. <laughs> right next to fire. Right? Yeah, because, you know, the things that sort of makes humans really humans is, you know, I mean, no other animal makes fire that mm -hmm. I know of and sits by the fire and uses fire the way we do. So it's one of those early things and stories like these belong with, you know, our ancient heritage. It connects you on a very, very deep level mm -hmm. with something fundamentally. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so many crossovers with so many different cultures. Um, I know that that in Japan, they have a very similar Little Mermaid story. And you were saying that it came from Denmark. Is that where you said it, it originated from? The Little Mermaid, but that's a, yes, an original tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Mm -hmm. But there are mermaid tales that are folk tales mm -hmm. that came out of the oral tree, uh, rather than Hans Christian Andersen's. But I, I know the Japanese have some amazing underwater tales yeah. and things. Yeah. I just yeah. love how, but how much is, crossover there is, even from like people from so many, so far away. Yeah, there are there are more than 500 variants of Cinderella found in Europe alone. Interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, the different it, variants? Oh, there's so many different variants. Uh, my daughter said, I think we had 13 different ones, didn't we, growing up? And there's a really cool African-American, and I can't remember it. I'll have to pull it out. But can you guess where they think that story originated? No. So what's the pivotal, because the pivotal element is, does the shoe fit, right? To have the tiny mm -hmm. foot. So the culture that emphasized the importance of the tiny feet China? for women was yeah. China. So they think that it might have started in China and traveled with peddlers and merchants through the Silk Route and landing, you know, in Europe. Interesting. And well, along the way, because there are variants there, I have Egyptian variants, I have a Korean variant, uh, you know, their variants, it's such a, you know, such a compelling story. Right. And so people before, you know, literacy was widespread, you brought stories with you. They they traveled with people when the English settled Australia and America. You know they brought their stories with them, right? Or when people were taken prisoner of war, or when they were enslaved and brought, they brought right. their stories with them. And they pick and you and they, you know when you have a really good story, everybody goes, "I heard a right. good story," but you know you change it so. Uh, I think the Chinese story has a fish in it rather than, oh, you know, no, there's no pumpkin or anything like that. I, I have a whole bunch of and them. And they here. still, I know that the, um, the Grimm's tale, when they, they actually cut the, their toes off and their heels off, right? And it's very, yeah. <laughs> very gross. But I mean, that's kind of the tradition in China. They don't cut off, but they break bones and bend. Yeah, break bones. It's pretty oh, brutal, right? Yeah. I mean, people died. There's... Yeah. And so, you know, that's how stories, because they are of the oral tradition, they travel with people as they move. And, you know, people have always been on the go, but stories go with you. But if you grew up in a, 
say on the ocean and then you end up in a mountainous pl place with that's very dry you know the landscape in the story will change the clothing the food but the basic mm -hmm. elements of the story stays mm -hmm. the same so it, it is really fun that, that to study you know the different versions of stories from different cultures yeah, definitely i'm very much looking forward to hearing all the different variants from different places yeah oh you're gonna have a great time <laughs> You're going to learn. Right? Yes, it'll be yeah. an exciting journey. So, yeah, how are you going to find all these uh, people? Well, um, we're hoping for suggestions from people who come onto the show. So, if you um, have people that you want to suggest to us, we would absolutely um, love any any direction um, that you you want to give yeah. us. Because this. You know, there's very, they're like famous scholars who deal with it, but then you'll get a very scholarly mm -hmm. approach. Um, well, and there's storyteller. Mm -hmm. And I think we want, so, like we me. want a balance. We want, we want um, both, you know, scholars and also storytellers. And so w w we want a, a mixture. Yeah, I'll think about it because then I can email you because like right now my brain is like, I can't think of uh, uh, any right now that I know are still telling stories mm -hmm. because the scholars are thinking of, uh, there's one named Maria, I think it's Tatar. She's been at Harvard and then there, but I think she might have retired. She's written some really interesting things. But um, if you, if you contact the American Folklore Society. Yeah, we have. They. Yeah. I mean, you know, because they, and then, because there's like this big storytelling festival. I wonder if it's still going on in Jonesboro uh, in Tennessee okay. every year. And hundreds of storytellers come there. There's one in Texas that's um, happening in March as well. I don't know if it's. Oh, so you should go to that. Yeah, it's in uh, Denton, which I think is outside of Fort Worth or Dallas or somewhere. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, um, there was for a long time, there was, you know, like really active. And now maybe it's because I have kind of retired, even though I don't seem to be able to quite retire. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I haven't been paying <laughs> that I haven't been sort of paying attention like I used mm -hmm. to, you know, because I used to be very sort of in that world. But between, between grandchildren and um, going to Norway so much and all the skiing, I'm like, do they ask you to tell stories a lot, your grandchildren? Yeah, yeah. My 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 one grandson always says "mumu." That's what they call me. It's like Norwegian for mother's mm -hmm. mother. Don't 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 make me the books. Tell me stories from out of your mind. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I wonder if you tell it differently if you're reading or if you're you just acting them out. You know, I I have a hard time. Um, just reading, mm -hmm. I end up just, you know, telling mm -hmm. it. Just ah, forget the book. I can definitely just see why you're a storyteller. You're very dynamic. <laughs> yeah. So you asked, how did you fall into? I think it found me rather than the other mm -hmm. way around. I just fell into mm -hmm. it, and I kept trying to become an academic. So I did a master's degree in linguistics, but I I wrote my thesis on using storytelling to teach English as a second language. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's what I, yeah. And you said at one point you wanted well, to be a folklorist, but you don't consider yourself a folklorist now? Well, 
I mean, I don't have a PhD or like a degree, but I have studied it. I've studied at the University of Minnesota. I studied for a year and a half in the folklore program. And then I was going to start a PhD at the University of Minnesota in folklore. And I'd done all my prerequisites. And then I got pregnant with my third child. And it would have been a two-hour commute each way. And I was like... (laughs) I can't have I can't have three kids and commute three days a week to you know it's just not going to work. So that's when I decided to uh, start writing instead. Yes. <laughs> so this is probably a good. I don't have the yeah I don't have the official degree, but you know. Uh, well, I I have studied enough to have. I would degree. consider you a folklorist. In my, it, <laughs> although I'm not a college, but I will I will grant you that. That title. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. And what fun! Yes, this is really fun. And for me. maybe we'll even have you on and tell you have you tell us more stories because you were just such a great storyteller. Um. Thank you. Yeah. Anything? I've got hundreds. Oh, of them. Great. So I'll go ahead and do that outro. Um. So thank you listeners for joining us today on Fabric of Folklore. I'm really glad you were here. And if you enjoyed it, don't forget to tell a friend and please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. Also, all the links and information we covered in this podcast will be on our website, fabricoffolklore.com. I may be the host of this podcast, but ultimately, this is y'all's show. We want to hear from you. So we've created a Facebook group. Uh, So you can tell us your thoughts, give us your suggestions for future guests or topics, and we can see if we can get them on the show. And if we can, we can even give you out a shout out. So we can't wait to see you next week. Bye.